And let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for another Lord's Day. Thank you for uh, this day of rest and worship and the study of your word. And Lord, we ask that you would bless us this day. Um, Bless our meditations. Bless our pursuits, Lord. And may they be to know you and to grow in Christ and to heed the work of the Holy Spirit. And bless us now as we look into um, this work of the Holy Spirit, the book of Galatians, and may it be profitable to us um, this day and days, years ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to turn to Galatians 6 again and verse 14. We're getting there. We're getting there. Almost the last five verses. Galatians 6, verse 14a. (laughs) And this is what Paul says. I'll give it some context with a few verses before this, the passage we looked at last week. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh." But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I want us to focus this morning on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that two times in the passage I read, the cross is made uh, mention of. And that is, first, those who were the Judaizers were compelling the Galatian Christians to be circumcised, and it says simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And then then when Paul, um, Paul contrasting himself to those who are taking a delight and boasting in the flesh, he says that, uh, may it never be, but that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... We're going to focus in on the cross and why specifically the Apostle Paul would, have, would, would put his boast in the cross, okay? And right off the bat, um, I think you understand in reading this that the cross is not the, by saying the cross, he's not talking about the wooden Roman structure that, uh, that, caused the death of Jesus, right? He's, he's talking about something broader. He's using cross as a broader category. And really, I think what he's saying is he's, he's boasting in the death of Jesus Christ. Um, the cross, the death of our... This is what Lloyd-Jones says, the cross, the death of our Lord upon the cross is not something to be regretted It is not something to be explained away, nor is it something to be kept out of sight or hidden. 
God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Put it in the center, place it in the front, proclaim it above everything else. That death of Christ. Now there are some, there are some who are uh, scandalized by the cross, right? The cross causes them to stumble. How could God, how could a powerful God, how could a God who is sovereign die on a cross, right? The uh, Muslims are, are scandalized by that. They just think it's a sign of weakness, right? That, that your God would, would hang on a Roman cross and die. And uh, that's, what, that's, a, that's uh, certainly a stumbling block to, um, to Muslims uh, who would come to faith. And in a sense, our flesh is scandalized by the message of the cross, right? Because our flesh, like those Judaizers, we're always, we're always seeking something that we can um, assert our dominance in or we can proclaim our excellence, you know, that boast. We all have a boast. And the flesh, the flesh wants to boast in things like money and strength and opportunities, and who you know, and um, promotions, and I mean, just every, every worldly ambition, the flesh can, uh, wants to boast in those matters. But the Apostle Paul says, you know, um, I, I have all those things to boast in too, right? Tribe of Benjamin, right? I was trained by Gamaliel, you know, I went to the right school, um, well-connected. Uh, he even says, um, blameless according to the law, right? And, uh, and so he has those boasts, but now here, as he writes, and after Christ, you know, um, converted him, all those boasts are gone. And he's got one boast, the cross of Jesus Christ. The Judaizers wanted to boast in this, in, of all things, the circumcised flesh of the Galatian converts, of their Galatian converts. The circumcised flesh. And um, false shepherds want to boast often in the number of followers they have. Right, Rick Warren can't help but always mention how big his church is, right? It being the biggest in the United States, right? But he knows the figures, and I mean, it's absurd. It's I don't know what the last count was, but do we even care? I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of members, which means there's no pastoral care, right? False shepherds want to boast in followers. Um, social media hasn't helped that. As you as you look at your followers increase and increase and increase, and you know I've got this many. I've only followed ten people, but I have ten thousand followers. Right, that's the way we speak. There's that boast. All right, that's boasting in the flesh. It's a different kind of boasting in the flesh. The Judaizers were boasting in the fleshly flesh. 
and uh, certainly in their ability to convince the Galatians that they needed to add the ceremonial law to, to faith in Christ. Christians are, though, to have one boast and one boast only. The cross of Jesus Christ. And what was the cross? The cross was the ultimate representation of public disgrace and shame. That's what it was. It it was the Son of God unjustly accused and dying at the hands of false witnesses who put him there. Right? And so it's it's the, the ultimate representation of disgrace and shame in a sense. If you, if you don't understand what it accomplished and why God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were active there on the cross. So why the cross? The death on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the central message of the gospel. And so when he says the cross of Jesus Christ... He's talking about, I have one boast, and that's what Scripture teaches about our salvation, the death of Christ, right? That's the one boast we have. And it's, that's the very heart of, the, of Christian theology, right? The death of the Son of God. That's at the very heart of it. Uh, the resurrection makes no sense without the death of Christ preceding it, Right? It's not even possible, let alone have, you know, it's not explainable. Um, So this is the, the core of Christian theology. The Son of God died to save you. The Son of God died to save sinners. And that is God's one way of mediation. What do you have to boast about? Well... Nothing in yourself, nothing in and of yourself, it's only the cross of Jesus Christ. Your only boast is what someone else has done. And that doesn't feel like a boast, does it? Because all of your other boasts are, I, me, my, this I've done, that I've done, this is who I know, this is how much I own, this is this, and this is that, right? That's how we, that's how we act, we have a boast, But not in Christianity. You have no boast. You have nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You boast in the the agonizing work of somebody else. So there's no boast except that one. 1 Corinthians 1.22, For I determined to know nothing among you, the Apostle Paul says to the uh, Corinthian church, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was so central, he determined, I'm taking one message to the, the Corinthians, right? And we read the letters and it's like, hmm, seems like there's more than one message here. But no, no, it's all the one message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Jesus, Jesus preached his crucifixion, right? He, uh, this isn't just something that, that um, he, he preached his death. Uh, Jesus' death was not um, an example of an, of an innocent victim without power 
uh, being oppressed by the powers that be. Right? That is not what the death of Christ was. Um, If we go to Matthew 16, we read this at 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned his, the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. So there, there we see Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem where I am going to die. And then three days later rise from the dead. But I'm going there to die. And, and the apostle Peter's like, come on, Jesus. This is not going to happen. This is, you know, this is not going to happen to you. And then look at what Jesus says. Get behind me, Satan. You're, not, you're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. In other words, um, it was satanic to suggest that God, Jesus not go to Jerusalem to die. It was the will of God that Jesus go to Jerusalem and die, right? Die. We could go to other places that Jesus mentions his death uh, before he dies. The apostles also preached the crucifixion. They preached the cross. They preached the death of Jesus Christ. And so we can go to uh, Acts 13. Acts 13, um, oh, well, let's go back here, read a big chunk. At 14, but going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down, and after reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul is like, ha ha, yes, I do. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. 
For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their lands as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges till Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So here he is going through all of the Old Testament you know, history. And after these things, he gave them the king, Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people, of Israel, And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandal, sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of the salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognize neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Fulfilled, by these, by con, uh, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no guilt for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And on he goes. So there he goes through redemptive history and goes through the Old Testament all the way up to Jesus and says that the prophets prophesied about Jesus and his death, and then Jesus came, you rejected him and killed him and executed him. We could go back to earlier in Acts. They talk about the, the death of Jesus. The apostles um, wrote about crucifixion. We can go to Romans chapter 3, 21. And we read this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Right? displayed his blood, his shed blood was a propitiation. We could go ahead to 5, 6, right? For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Right. So there's all the theological weight of the death of the son of God. Right, we could go many other places. The prophets in the Old Testament clearly spoke of the death that was necessary for the um, Son of God to undergo. 
right? Who has believed our message? This is Isaiah 53. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and all of us had a death sentence. Not just a life sentence imprisonment. We had a death sentence. He took that sentence. He had to die. He died. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So you see all that language of crushing and piercing and the grave and it's all about the death of Christ. There it is, any average Israelite reading Isaiah 53 should have got it. They didn't. They didn't. They still don't get it. The Jews still refuse to see that. So what then is the importance of the crucifixion, the death of Christ theologically? It's preached all through the scriptures. We get it uh, everywhere. Um, atonement comes through the death of Christ. Atonement. Somebody wanted to define what atonement is. Anyone? What does it mean when we make atonement? Yeah. Yeah, at one minute, I've heard that. Yeah. Okay, Esther, what is atonement? Pretty generic. Yeah, sort of. What's that? Yeah, it is reconciliation, right? It is that, but it, it's it's a it is a payment. It is a it is a sacrifice that that um, done on behalf of somebody that that makes them right, right? Makes the, situ you know, makes the situation right. And so, atonement, you know, the, 
that's the main, that's, we have to be thinking of that atonement that comes through Christ's death. And there's, in Christ's death, there's also this element of both love and justice, right? Love and justice come together on the cross. That's the amazing thing is, is there's Jesus acting as our substitute, so it's a substitutionary atonement. He's our substitute. He's loving us by taking upon his own shoulders the sins that we, we amassed, right? He takes those upon his shoulders, and that's just love. But then there's justice on the cross as well in his death because, because when Jesus took on your sins, God hated him. God despised Jesus, if I can speak in such terms. And that is why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Um, God hates sin. That is fundamental to his holiness. He must hate sin. And when Jesus became sin and the curse, well, then we can conclude that God hated, hated that hated the one who was sin. And so what does he do? He does what the Holy Father must do, and that's he pours out every single, not every single bit, but every bit of wrath that was necessary to atone for those sins that Jesus had laid upon him. There is still wrath that God will dispense. God will dispense his wrath eternally in hell for those who reject Jesus Christ. But on the cross, the wrath of God was uh, poured out for the elect, for those chosen before the foundation of the world. And so it was 100% effective, right? Now, think of, think of these things, just some other, just thinking about the cross and why it should, should be the centerpiece of your uh, understanding of the Christian faith. Christ's atoning death on the cross was the only way for you to be saved. There was no other way. There was no way for God to, proper, to somehow overlook sin without punishing sin. And there was no way for for any man born after Adam in, through ordinary generation to, to be righteous enough to become that substitutionary atonement. No one else could do this. Only Jesus Christ could do it. And Luke 24, 25 through 26 says, And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? It was absolutely necessary for Christ to do this, or in the sense of it was the only thing that would lead to salvation, or God could just have decided not to save anybody, right? He could have just said, game over, but he didn't. And he's still calling people to himself today. And that blood of Christ is still effectual for their salvation today. Right? As much as people don't seem to be serious about anything or think about death and just want to be entertained to death. You know? 
Think about this. Christ's atoning death on the cross satisfied God the Father. Satisfied. Now, we talk about satisfaction as like, you know, you bite into a raspberry white chocolate cheesecake and you get it in your mouth and you swallow that first bite and you're like, oh, yeah, that's satisfying, you know. Um, the, the stakes are a little higher when it comes to <laughs> the atoning death of Christ on the cross, right? God is angry at sin every day. Angry at the sin of his people. And then God, the Son, comes along, dies on that cross, bears his wrath, and God is completely then satisfied. Satisfied with the atonement, satisfied with the judgment, satisfied with that, that transaction with his Son that they had determined before the foundation of the world to do. Primary purpose of the atonement was that reconciling of of God to the sinner. Notice how I put that. The reconciliation of the sinner to God may be regarded as its secondary purpose. Okay? Say that again. The primary purpose of the atonement was to reconcile God to the sinner. God first, right? God must be satisfied first. The secondary purpose was to reconcile us to God. God is always first in everything. The cross was a propitiation. Propitiation. And what is a propitiation? It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. And then in so doing that, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. It changes that wrath. It pours out the wrath. It is satisfied in Christ, and then God's demeanor changes toward us from one of wrath to, to kindness, to, to, um, to favor. God is now for you, not against you. Before the cross, before Christ's sacrifice, He was against you. But now He's for you, right? And we could go to we could go to the glorious passage of Romans 8 and have a dissertation on that whole concept, right? That God, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then Christ took your rightful place in his death on the cross. It was a vicarious atonement. Our sins were laid upon Christ. You should have been there. In fact, I don't know, we could have set the age of 33, and once we all got to 33, we all could have been crucified on crosses to, to uh, you know, not even atone for our sins, but just to receive the penalty of our sins. It would not have atoned, our own deaths would not have atoned, but maybe the, the punishment would have been laid on us of death. It is, after all... The, the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. But Christ took your rightful place in his death on the cross. Our sins were laid upon Christ. We just read that in Isaiah 53, didn't we? Which is a wonderful passage. Who wants to memorize this passage of Scripture with me? 
All right, Robbie, you and I are going to memorize Isaiah 53, and the rest of these pagans can... (laughs) Isaiah 53, I want to memorize it. Um, Isaiah 53, 6, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. There it is, right? We've all gone, sheep are stupid. Sheep get into all kinds of trouble. That's how we are. We get into all kinds of trouble. We sin in various ways, right? And not even in our actions, most often in our thoughts. And so um, Jesus took those sins, took your sins, the sins that you have committed, the sins that you will commit. He has taken those on himself, and he has died in your place. He bore the physical, he bore the pain. Think of the physical suffering on the cross and the carrying of sin, becoming the curse, right? Do you think it was pleasant for Jesus, the Holy One, to become the curse? He, become, he became, let's just take one of us. He became all the vile things you had done. But then multiply that times all of his people. Right? All of their sins is what he became. Right? Their sins. And he became the curse. And the father abandoned him. And so think of the pain that he bore there. Suffering on the cross. The Holy One of God taking on all the all the despicable, terrible sins of his people, and then to have his Father pour out his wrath upon him, and so in, in turn somehow abandon him. We can't even make sense of that theologically. And then he bears the punishment and the wrath of God. And so, all of that done vicariously, all of that done for you, done in place of you, and it's, it's so much better that He did that than that you foolishly attempted to do the same thing. Now, that's, the, you know, atonement is what everybody is seeking to, to figure out. How can I be right with God? How can I be justified before God? In fact, that's what the whole book has been about. And when you see what Jesus did and you see the centrality of the cross in the Christian faith, then you begin to see those who want their works to atone for them, those who want their little works to, to build up merit for them. It's just crazy. It diminishes the, the absolute necessity of the cross. It also gives you something else to boast in. But all we have to boast in is the cross. That's the only thing. That's the only way. That's the, the only way that we are saved. But someone, somewhere, and a lot of someone somewhere, really think that clicking through the rosary is what's going to get them to heaven. Do you know people like that? And they just constantly, constantly do their rosary. May as well get 50-60 in this hour. May as well get 50-60 in the next hour, right? Do you see, is there any vicarious substitutionary 
propitiating atonement through that? No. No. Of course, they would say, well, Jesus did all that stuff. I'm just adding a little bit more. And I say, no, Jesus did it all. He, he did it all. He said, it is finished. When he was done dying on the cross or suffering on the cross, before he died, he said, it is finished. And that's what he meant. He had finished his atoning work on the cross. Yeah. Yeah, there's no assurance. If there's some little slice of merit that you've got you've to finish, there's no way to be assured. Right? So, yeah, it's sad that Roman Catholics live in this constant sense of guilt. They never get to enjoy their just, the justification of God. Yeah. Um, technically, yeah. Um, atonement as is a result of of what God has, what God the Son did on the cross, dying, um, and His sacrificial. It's a sacrificial atonement. His death accomplishes that atonement of bringing reconciliation. Justification is. The cross necessitates it, but justification is God's legal declaration that you are no longer guilty, right? And so they differ in that sense, right, what they are, but the justification is that legal declaration that, that you, are, um, you are saved. And that, that comes about, yeah, the cross is necessary for that, and that comes about by faith. Right, our faith justifies. Of course, that faith is a gift, and so the but the but the mechanism of justification is faith. Um, I think that's um, maybe a little bit of an infelicitous way to say it, but I'm going to stick with it. Um, Christ's atoning death on the cross was for his chosen people. It was not that he died potentially for all, but that he died effectually for God's chosen. Now, this is where Reformed theology is distinguished from every other branch of Christian theology. Okay? There are those who say that Christ died for everyone on the cross. Right? Your Arminians would say that. Your, your, um, anybody, anybody outside of the reform camp. But that means that 
it's only those who come to Christ or choose Christ that Christ effectually died for, right? He, he only potentially died for everybody, but it only applies to those who choose him, right? And so decisional regeneration factors into this whole scheme. But we say, no, on the cross, there was a specific group of people that Jesus died for, and that was the elect that he chose before the foundation of the world, right? Um, and it comes out in passages like this, which you've heard me preach before. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and this wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them in as well, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I receive from my Father. And then... Um, 26, leaping forward a bit, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So there we have just a clear statement that it is the sheep that he, those that the father had given him that he dies for on the cross. And so, what's, what's wonderful about that? What's wonderful about that is Jesus' death is not just potential salvation. It means Jesus' death is actual salvation for his chosen ones. He completes the transaction. He brings it home, right? And it's not left to man's decision or man's merit or man's work. Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah, we could get into, uh, I mean, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Um, I think in that passage, the, he's, um, these are letters to churches. John was writing to churches. And so there's a context outside of those churches where there are other faithful Christians in the world. right? So I don't think he's using world in everybody in the world. He's using world in the sense that there are Christians dispersed all over the world. All over the yeah, 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 geographically universal, right? Yep, I think that's, that's how, I th that's a legitimate, that's not a trick, that's a g legitimate use of the word, the world. Yeah. 
Uh, they mean all of Jerusalem or, yeah, yeah, that's helpful. All right, um, I only have like two minutes. Um, here's the other thing about the cross. It was work you could not do. It was the work you could never do, okay? It was not like circumcision in the keeping of the ceremonial law, which you could do, which is what the Judaizers wanted the Galatian churches to do. You can keep this. You know, you can be circumcised, assuming you haven't already been circumcised, and you can keep the ceremonial law, and you can do this and that sacrifice and celebrate this and that holiday, um, and you can go boast about that, but, but you, you can't do what Christ did on the cross. He had to be a sacrifice. He had to do the work. You're incapable of it entirely. We can't claim, in other words, at the end of this, we can't claim any credit for anything. We just can't claim any credit. God has done this work. And that's the point that Calvin makes here in his sermon on this. I wanted to share. Paul specifically speaks of the cross here because he seeks to knock down and trample underfoot all pride in man. For we always want to be someone in and of ourselves and maintain a certain dignity. Therefore, in order to rid us of such a wicked desire, Paul shows us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, should be our only cause of glorying because he was crucified for us. Following on from this, he adds that we will be crucified to the world and the world to us when we have learned to glory only in the grace that our Lord Jesus Christ has brought to us. How? Those who are not crucified to the world, that is, those who desire to have a position of some authority and to be important and who ask to be held in honor and promoted, in other words, those who are diverted here, there and everywhere by their lusts, certainly do not yet know what it is to glory in the cross of Jesus Christ, for they begin at the wrong point. They are confused within themselves. That's, that's the cross. If you boast in the cross, you're, you're proclaiming to the world, I have no boast. This is it. And it's not even like a boast because you didn't do anything. You didn't qualify for this by your merit. You didn't, you didn't impress God so that he put Jesus on the cross for you. No, I mean, this is the unboast. To boast in the cross is the unboast. And so uh, we don't boast as Christians except in the cross. We give all praise to God. He has done it. He did it on our behalf. He had to do it. We couldn't do it. We were weak. All we did was supply the sin that he had to, to redeem, the sinful person that he had to redeem. All right, let's stop. And uh, Chuck, will you pray? Thanks. Thanks.